Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. Today, I'm joined by our guest, Cindy Finch. Welcome, Cindy. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Arden. Good morning from California. We are really excited to have you here to talk about grief today um, and what we can learn and grow from in terms of the grieving process. Um, For our listeners and our viewers, I'm going to give a little bit about your background. Gosh, Cindy, you've really covered some impressive topics and very relevant topics in your training. Um, I know you got your master's in clinical social work from Mayo Clinic, and you work with parents and families and individuals on everything from parenting to grief and loss and post-traumatic growth. Uh, Is that the right term? Yes, post-traumatic loss and grief work. Um, You help people managing life-altering illnesses, which is something I've gone through myself. You've been published Mm -hmm. in numerous publications, the LA Times through um, the Huffington Post. And I love the title of your book, When Grief is Good, uh, because I think it's a hard thing for people to wrap their head around. So, so tell us a little bit about, you know, certainly after the last two years, many of us are grieving loss in our families, in jobs, in financial security, all sorts of different types of, of grief. Could you tell us a little bit about what we can, how we can grow from these experiences and what we can learn? Yeah, absolutely. And good morning, Arden. I uh, am happy to join you from California out here. And, you know, one of the the big things that I think about in this season that we're all in is that we've kind of gone into this period of like the dark ages. Um, And we're just beginning to emerge from it now. And I like to think of visual words, but I'm hoping we all kind of have a renaissance if you will, in our lives, but this is what difficult times can actually produce in us if we're able to lean into them and move through them and learn the lessons of what we call the dark night of our soul. And it's very hard to do that um, because most of us really want to resist things that are difficult, crushing, painful, disappointing, uh, steeped with failure and things like that. And yet we find that those very things are the best teachers that we can find. You'll, you'll meet celebrities or everyday people, very successful people, even, you know, just regular people like me. And when they look back on their life, it's interesting how their most difficult times are the ones that they often remark were the very best guides Mm -hmm. and teachers and those ones that really solidified them and taught them the most lessons. And that's why grief is good. I love that. And I can relate to it having gone through my own journey with a health issue that, you know, at the time you're just devastated by it, but going through and actually feeling the pain that comes from it and some of the loss of parts of, you know, my medical history became more complicated because of it. But also now if I look back, it gave me an enormous amount of perspective that sometimes I wish I could call upon more readily. Because as I joke all the time, once I kind of went through the process, 
you know, now life went back to worrying about sort of the ups and downs of daily life like anybody else. You know, I didn't like my dinner from yesterday. My job isn't what I hope. All these types of right. areas. <clears throat> the basic, yeah, yeah, the average gripes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. the average gripes. And yet when we're in, you know, what I call this uh, narrow space where life kind of crushes us in, there's this thing about, you know, all our expectations of life really being lowered, right? Like, I'm just glad I woke up today. I'm just glad my legs work. Like this is what suffering can do for us. It can help us find um, immense gratitude and joy and relief in the most basic of things. It's a great point. And it's a, it's a good reminder on a daily basis. I find now sometimes even just having a small virus or a cold reminds me of just how precious your health is. And even starting mm -hmm. with that as a base way to wake up is important. Well, what led you down this path? Because I have to say, it sounds, you know, as an outsider, non-clinician, it sounds a little bit depressing. And so I'm curious sort of what motivated you to get into this field. <laughs> you cracked me up because it is such a depressing topic. I have a mentor that was like, you need to write a book about this. And I was like, oh, I want to write a book about like, I wanted to call this book, how to do brave things, like how to be sure. a strong person. And she was goes, yeah, but that's not how your story really started. Mm -hmm. So, and I think you would do your readers a disservice if you called it brave or strong because bravery and strength were byproducts, mm -hmm. but they weren't what really walked you through it. It was steeped in grief and loss. So let me give you the very short version of I had uh, gotten married. I had been through a marriage and divorce and had two kids in my early 30s and met who I will call the love of my life, Darren. We, I, this is actually our 24th wedding anniversary today. So we'll have a, a little celebration later. But we we kind of tell this funny, not funny story on you know, year one of marriage, we found out we were going to have um, a, a wee baby, our baby. And on year two, I was deep in the belly of cancer treatments because I had cancer while I was pregnant and I didn't know it. And then it went on where the treatments were, were dire. And a few years later, I ended up with um, heart, liver and lung failure from the treatments. And so we whipped us back into that valley, if you will. So from that point of figuring life out as a young person with a family and all the things that go along with it, we really had to kind of scratch and claw our way to figure out how do you do life when it jumps the tracks. Mm -hmm. And that, and, and, and so much of it was in that space of how I thought life would be versus how it really was. And then the tools to work in that space of um, radically accepting what my life really was. I had to, we had to reset our expectations, develop new beliefs, deal with the traumas, let go of um, the dream. I call that death of the dream. So that was our starting gate, if you will. And eventually it led me to doing this work with other families who are facing catastrophic life events and it's kind of like the bittersweet sad glad reality of you know if this is i do the work that i had to do and that's what brings many people to our field right well thank you for sharing that incredibly powerful journey and i'm so glad to see you alive and here and well today um it's yes. incredible <laughs> that, <laughs> that you've been able to bring you know to bring something that was a personal issue to so many others and um, it's just, it's remarkable to hear that. And, and I think, 
I mean, you more than most, just based on what you said, have struggled with uncertainty. How do you help clients? You know, I, I remember one of the lines that my therapist gave me years ago that I found so helpful was, you have a storyline in your head as to how a situation is going to go. And particularly in romantic mm -hmm. situations, when it doesn't go, go away, doesn't go according to your plan in your head, you get frustrated <laughs> and the other person doesn't know what's going on in your head. And that always <laughs> struck me. And, and a lot of what you've said sort of um, suggest that too, but but how do you help people who are planners, who are Type A and successful, and have a, you know, have a vision for what the future is going to look like? How do you help them cope with uncertainty, whether it's as complicated as the situations you've been in, or or just daily financial uncertainty or uncertainty related to COVID, whatever it might be? I love it. Um, so, and most people are planners, right? So that's like, that's a lot of, not everybody's a planner. Have you noticed that and when you have to kind of interact with them and they're like, let's just see how it goes or, I don't know, let's just leave it up to the universe. And I'm like, Ooh, but I don't, I don't know about that. Like, as I long as know. the universe chooses A, B or C, I'm totally fine with it. I just, then I feel like, okay, the universe, I think also is a planner because there's a whole plan at work, right? So maybe we should like follow the like universe on planning. Well, you kind of said it, I, for dealing with uncertainty, I love to have a plan A, B and C, and then get in the presence of each of those plans, lay out the details, what the contingencies, the pros and cons, the possibilities. This is actually a skill called cope ahead that I like mm -hmm. to teach my clients. You cope ahead for every possible scenario and you actually lay them out and then you play them through in your mind, plan A, plan B, plan C, and you expose yourself to all the scenarios, try not to drive yourself crazy. So first of all, but you have plan A, plan B, plan C with uncertainty, all these different contingencies. And then you work to mentalize that you could in fact, deal with any of those outcomes. Mm -hmm. So if I'm focusing on plan A, let's say plan A is I'm going to get the right job, meet the right person, go to the right school, you know, and all of this is going to lead to happiness. And that's what I really want life to be. I also need to be looking at plan B and plan C and then figure out, work backwards from there. What will it take for me to get comfortable with life not going my way? So this, there's two parts to this. The next part is I need to actually um, find something within me that I can rely on. So some values or faith or something that even if the worst thing happens, I have this thing I can land back on. So it's my family, it's my belief system, it's my optimism, it's my, um, you know, belief in a greater good or positivity. But then the other part is I need to seek people around me for support. So that's probably an entire different podcast. But having multiple plans and saying, this is going to help you when you worry. So listen to this part. Mm. Okay, I really want plan A to happen. Plan A, 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 A. It's so good. I'm going to be excited and blah, blah, blah. And then when your brain starts going there over and over, like you really want it to happen, then your brain reaches in and says, also, I've I could accept plan B and even plan C because I've done hard things in the past, if you have, and I've been able to walk through hard things. And so I could handle any of these. And this is where you send your mind when it starts obsessing so you can soothe it. 
I love that. I just love that analogy. And I love the, for planners, I think it must give them, if you're, if the topic is uncertainty, it gives them some ability to maybe not control, but feel like they have some um, empowerment over a process that can feel very scary. So I want to switch. I love tax. that word. Yeah. 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 Go ahead. Empowerment. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to switch tacks and just talk to you a little bit about another area of your expertise, which is parenting. And I, you know, on the one hand, <laughs> I don't want to sh shame parents of the current generation by any stretch. But, I, you know, when I was growing up, my parents had a different ethos. You sort of, as a child, behaved a certain way according to your parents' expectations. And it feels mm. like the tables have turned a little bit. And whether it's helicopter parenting or this is the trophy generation where everybody wins every game, you know, it feels like there's a much more protective style of parenting that has emerged, which mm -hmm. is all about, particularly in affluent families or families of high achievement, you know, protecting someone from any feelings of failure and loss. You know, talk to mm -hmm. talk to us about how that impacts the way children are being raised and and what parents might be either taking away from children and what could they do differently. Well, I love that you're asking this because this is actually what I call a process of fragilizing our children. And our children actually don't need to be fragilized, but I understand that many parents do that. The problem, and I'm gonna probably just say what you're already asking me is that when I fragilize my child, protect them, go, um, go in front of them and try to smooth out all the bumps, I'm actually denying them the ability to build the muscle to handle life, life muscles. So I'm thinking of Winter Olympics. You remember that sport um, curling where that person <laughs> is in front of the other person and they're brushing the ice to make sure that it all goes smooth. Like this is what so many parents do. And I, and I remind them like, hey, your child actually needs to be able to go on these bumps and handle twists and turns because this is the reality of life. And if you deny them this, everything in their life is going to be much harder. So this comes about from the parent, um, usually in anxiety about mm -hmm. how they, that what they're able to do with boundaries and limits. And, and, and they also, Arden, let's be honest, you know, parents give what they have. Every parent, every parent who has a child wants to give what they have to help that child. But the problem is they can give unhelpful help, mm -hmm. unhelpful help. So part of this is that a lot of parents, especially affluent families, really feel like the help that they can give is money and support. And, and I mean, that's awesome. That's really awesome. But the problem is when you have a lot of resources and your child doesn't have to work for them, and I don't know if this is your scenario um, with your clients, but with my clients, they parents are paying for everything and the child doesn't have to build that muscle to figure out how to do it. So mm -hmm. then it accidentally sets up this uh, dependency, a dependency on the adult child with the parents. And so then the parents are upset, like, why are you, why are you dependent on me? And there's a power difference. So I think the, the thing that most parents need to know is that it is okay for your child to face some difficulties. In fact, they will get along much better in life. They will learn about the world and they'll be more successful in relationships if you let them face consequences, challenges, and build that healthy self-confidence that comes with handling hard things. When I handle hard things and I overcome them, I feel wonderful about myself. If I fail, I learn and have a teaching experience in my life that I tuck into my pocket as my own for later times. And this is, the, I think, the, such an 
important lesson with parents, but man, we find it hard to do that. So Cindy, I love the analogy of the curling because I see that in so many parents that we work with where they think, you know, I'm just smoothing the ice a little just to make things a little bit more comfortable. And the challenge with that is not only do they get used to doing that, but the child learns like anytime mm -hmm. there's something that's hard, my parents are going to save me. And it's if you can't set that boundary when what's at stake is a grade in school or possibly someone being left out of a party that you thought they should be invited to, how are you going to do that if the stakes are higher? And that, mm -hmm. you know, then to try and we get parents who haven't really done that a child during a child's lifetime. And then they call us and say, when the stakes are really high, well, maybe he needs to go to jail or maybe this needs to happen. And the child ah! is totally perplexed <laughs> as to as to the reverse and in, in, in the change in um, tactics. So I think it's a really, it's an important, um, it's an important lesson for parents to learn. And I think it's a tough one to your point because we live in a generation where we want everyone to be happy. And, and that's an admirable mm. goal and probably not a realistic one. Um, no, I think, and I think when I, I meet so many parents who say, I just want my child to be happy. And I'm like, actually, that's a terrible goal for your child. I need to be honest, that's a terrible goal for your child. A better goal is actually, I would like to have a child that can be um, optimistic that's a better goal to raise op a child who is more uh, optimistic, can find the good in things, believes in themselves. But it's a different it's a different tack to your point in parenting because what happens when I over function as a parent, I accidentally create a cascade of under functioning around me. So a lot of times parents have unwittingly contributed to this, as you know. And when the stakes are high, which I love that visual, like there's really high stakes and they have to back up and try to unring the bell on that, it's so painful for families and for the adult children. And it feels very punishing oftentimes to adult children. Like I, you know, and then in our world where we're dealing with addiction or mental health issues, it feels like <clears throat> I'm being punished because I have this diagnosis, which is not what's happening, but it can feel that way because there haven't been any boundaries. They haven't experienced their parents behaving that way previously. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I, I love the work of the glass house. It's this place where people can go for five days and actually figure out how to develop emotional maturity, deal with their, you know, their unmet expectations on family and life and how to build their healthy, mature adult. Because a lot of times I'm sitting in a younger ego state when I'm mm -hmm. disappointed, frustrated, angry, feeling penalized, you know, that all of a sudden my parents who've been accidentally over-functioning now want to step back and let me face consequences. And I'm going to hit the hot pavement of real life like, whoa, it's big. But I love some of this work where I can actually build those internal structures in me pretty quickly. So that type of work, what you guys do is so supportive because the reality, which is a lot of what I help clients face, the reality of where you're at, you, you need to catch up to that. And let's do that together and figure out how to work with what's really happening, not what should be, what you wish, what could have been, but what is. And that's often the conversation, right? Absolutely. So now in another topic, again, it's so interesting to talk to you because you have so many varied areas of expertise. Let's um, do it, Arden. What you got for me? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to ask you a, you know, a, a tough question because we hear this from our clients a lot. Uh, you know, there is this perception that somehow wealthy people 
don't necessarily experience trauma, that there's a hierarchy of trauma. So if, you know, if I have a kid with a problem, well, it's not as big of a problem because I can get that child to treatment or I can afford to get the right resources in place. And it's absolutely true that there's certainly benefits to having somebody's um, being able to provide for somebody's care. But the flip side of that, it doesn't mean that the person themselves isn't experiencing trauma. How do you help clients who say like, we have so many things in this world. How how do we even, you know, I'm not, I don't see that I've had trauma or I'm not, I don't think this is a big deal because how can I even complain about it? I think about our clients who are very reluctant in self-help meetings to identify themselves as having problems with their kids because those around them maybe have had much more significant issues with their children and had trouble accessing the right resources. You know, how, how do you help those folks understand that what they're going through is just as valid and that they need to address it? That's such a good question. And it's such a slippery slope, right? Because that's exactly what I feel when you talk. It's a slippery slope. If I have been living at a certain level or I've been, you know, successful or inherited money or I've just, you know, done well in life materialistically, that is no indication that the other areas of my life intellectual, emotional, physical, are have also followed suit. So I, I think that there's this big disconnect, and, and I hope that's the right word. You can correct me if not. But just because I look one way on the outside does not mean I'm that way mm -hmm. on the inside. In fact, I've probably had to over-rely on these things, um, you know, my wealth or my education or whatever. And it hasn't left me a lot of time to actually develop some of the other um, internal strengths. So let me, let me get around to what you're saying. This is the other problem that because the perception of who I am is somebody who's wealthy or strong or powerful, it's a very hard for me to find support that's trustworthy, mutual, responsive, because oftentimes people are threatened by me or they um, are intimidated or I don't have a lot of peers that I can go to for support. I don't have a community. And the other thing is I may be responsible for a lot of people. I might be an employer. Uh, there might be a lot of expectation on me. So it doesn't leave me a lot of avenues to get that vital community support. And one of the, the hard things of my trauma doesn't equal their trauma, I mean, honestly, who really wants to win the my trauma is worse than their trauma game, right? Yeah. And, it, and it becomes so hard when I'm isolated, like a lot of my wealthy clients are, they're extremely isolated, they're extremely lonely, and the support only comes from what they buy. And mm -hmm. it doesn't feel the same depth of connection and love and support, and they're actually suffering from their loneliness and isolation. Um, and so it, it's hard because people with a lot of wealth and with a lot of success feel like because I have wealth and success, I should not complain about anything. And oh, by the way, I have wealth and success. And even this hasn't fixed whatever this problem is. How bad of a person must I be? Like mm -hmm. I must be, on, be beyond hope and repair because who would ever believe that I suffer with these things? So they're actually kind of locked in this, in this prison of other people's opinions, their isolation. And it's so hard for families in that way. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think them 
yeah, I don't want to go on and on here, but one of the most difficult things is for them to build connection and get meaningful support. I love that because that is for many people how you start to make change or you start to acknowledge, boy, this is affecting me more than I thought it did. And maybe I'm even willing to reach out to help, especially if you feel supported. So looking back on your career, what is something you wish you knew about the field that you went into before you did? If you could think about yourself, you know, we'll, we'll say it's 10 years ago, but whatever it was in that process of, of entering this field, what, what do you wish you knew about the field? What do I wish I knew about the field? That um, when you go into the mental health field, there is a world of hurt that never stops. That's mm -hmm. one of the most interesting things. It is that this field is not a nine to five job. I, in my times when I've been a little more toward burnout, I tell my husband that my one of my fantasies is to just go work at Trader Joe's where I could wear my <laughs> Hawaiian shirt and, and just be like, hey, here's your... Trader Joe's peanut butter cups and your pumpkin spice this and because it's just that's my like fantasy yeah. of a of a more simplistic career because I have met people that have been the wealthiest in our zip code and I have met people literally under a bridge to do this work and the cross section of mm. humanity that has I've been had the privilege to work with has been staggering to me. And I realized one of the things about the work that you and I do, I can't turn it off at night always because yeah. of the stories, the stories that have moved my heart. So one of the things about our field I wish is that there was a more like eight to five component where they're like, here's job and you just do it this way. And then there's this compartment switch in your brain where you just flip that off at night. I've had to figure that stuff out on my own of, of how to deal with the fact that you and I work um, in human suffering and, yeah. and to figure out my role in that. And I figured out my role. I'm, I'm one point of light on the path that they're on, but it's not my path. I'm just here yeah. to help them along their path and take the next step. I love that. And I'm smiling even as you're talking about human suffering, because I always say in another lifetime, I'd like to run a pet business because I love dogs and it just seems so there happy and go. cheery all day there long. You, go. Um, you guys, you can bring your dogs right by my Trader Joe's where we work. <laughs> where <I> work. <laughs> you could direct us to the best dog treats. Um, well, I'm going to end the, the podcast on a question. And I normally do not like this question because I think it's overutilized, but I'm just struck by how genuine and how sparkly, for lack of a better word, this conversation has been about grief, which is not usually a topic I associate with that term. So tell me, like, what, what do you do if you, how have you learned to compartmentalize or what do you do for yourself to kind of endure and, and feel both fed by the work that you do, but also balanced as a, as a person? Mm, it's a good question. It's a, uh, it's a tricky question because there's no particular list that holds up um, every single day in every single situation. And I'll tell you the number, okay, here it is for me, the number one thing, aside from having dogs and aside from, um, you know, being able to physically move and enjoy and appreciate what I have, which helps my mindset, I have something I call my secret strength in my life. And here's my secret strength. I have a um, really amazing husband mm. and he and I together have been able to cultivate through some very dark times, a very deep um, and rich connection that actually feeds the root system of who I am. 
Um, and I, and I say that not in any romantic terms, but I am lucky enough to have been married to somebody that was willing to do their work, to get messy, to figure himself out, to not, we say, we just don't, we just don't quit on the same day. That's our big secret there. We just don't quit on the same day. And um, that's, that's my secret strength mm. for doing this Good work. I love that. I love, what a beautiful way to end. Cindy, thank you so much for your time today and for joining us on our podcast. We really appreciate it. And I really enjoyed the conversation. Oh, thanks, Arden. It was good to meet you guys. And thanks to, uh, thanks to all your listeners. Well, thank you to all our listeners and viewers for Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. Um, if you're so inclined, please give us a great review on your podcast platform of choice. And we will see you at the next episode. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.